Today is Friday, September the 29th, 2006, and you're listening to the Hinterviews podcast with Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Laura Denker. Welcome to our very first NAC English Theatre podcast and to a series we're calling The Hinterviews. Every episode, we hope to take you into the intimate world of the artists and creative minds behind the productions on stage. Unless you wonder about the title Hinterviews, let me explain. Peter Hinton is the Artistic Director of English Theatre at the National Arts Centre. Considered one of Canada's finest stage directors, Peter has had a 20-year career as a playwright, dramaturge and tireless champion of Canadian theatre. In today's interview podcast, Peter interviews Alan Cole, writer and composer of The Wrong Son. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming this afternoon to our first interview of the season. Uh, I'm Peter Hinton. I'm the Artistic Director of English Theatre here at the NAC. And I am thrilled to be able to have Alan Cole, who's the creator and composer of The Wrong Son, here with us this afternoon. So please give Alan a warm welcome. Uh, I first met Alan 22 years ago, 21 years ago, in Toronto, where Alan was the musical director on a production of the Three Penny Opera. And um, his girlfriend at the time was my roommate. (laughs) And we met and started talking about this spectacular piece, which the Three Penny Opera is, and about the music and the politics and the meaning of it. And uh, we have been friends and collaborators ever since. And uh, it's a hard thing in the theater because often your friends are the people you work with because you spend so much time in the theater. It's the only way you get to meet a friend. Anyway. (laughs) But I want to tell you something about my friend Alan. He's uh, originally from Nova Scotia. And he has worked as a composer, a musical director, a lyricist, and a book writer. And some of his musicals include Hush, which was produced by Theatre Pass Mirai in Toronto, The Crimson Veil, which was produced at the Caravan Farm in British Columbia and the Factory Theatre in Toronto, Anything That Moves, which is a musical he co-created with Anne-Marie MacDonald and Elisa Palmer, which uh, played at the Tarragon Theatre, and his musical Pélagie, some of you might have known, that he wrote with Vincent de Tourdenay, that was first uh, co-produced at the NAC and the Canadian Stage Company in 2004. And last year, toured the Maritimes in both English and French. Uh, Alan has won numerous awards, including four Dora Maver Moore Awards, the Best Film Score Award from the Atlantic Film Festival, and has uh, currently, has in composition, an opera that he is writing with Maristella Rocha called How It Storms, and it's written for the Evergreen Club, which is a gamelan ensemble. Have you ever heard gamelan instruments? The combination of 
the voice and the gamelan is really, really extraordinary. And some of the members of the Evergreen Club play are members of Array Music, who are the musicians in the production of The Wrong Sun. You'll see this afternoon. Alan is also a regular contributor to the Shaw Festival, where he writes the scores for plays that are, are done there. And uh, he is writing a piece for voice and glass instruments called The Sandman. Uh, his most current piece is a musical comedy called La Marquise that he's writing with his partner, Melody Johnson, and playwright Rick Roberts. And Alan has a right son, which is his young boy, Dashiell, which I know is his proudest accomplishment. <laughs> So that's Alan. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alan, I just, you know, it's, I know it's a big and a general question, but I thought we'd just start by talking a little bit about The Wrong Son mm -hmm. and how it began and um, what prompted you to create this? <laughs> Well, I'm a composer, first of all, and for a long time I, I wrote music um, uh, entirely for the theater. And, uh, and through working with a lot of great writers, I started getting the idea of wanting to write myself. Now, since then, now I've written quite a few pieces on my own, but this is the first piece I wrote on my own. And at that time, when I first started doing it, and it was around 1990, uh, it, was a, it was a bold step for me to think that I could write. And, uh, and, and, but I knew that the piece was very personal. It's, uh, it's, it's set in Nova Scotia. It's about a composer. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of details of, that are very personal to me in it. And, and I just thought, um, it's not acceptable for me to try to find somebody else to write this. It's not going to happen. They're gonna, they're, they'll write something else, and I love collaborating, but they're not going to write the thing that I have in my head. So I had to take the leap and, and do it. And it also came from the... The, this genre of film noir, the, the films really of the period, uh, sort of 1945 to 1955, the dark sort of thrillers that come out of uh, post-war uh, uh, North America, the, 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 for some reason have always been, uh, always moved me a lot. And, uh, and partly uh, loving the stories of these films, but it was also partly the, uh, the music that actually goes with these films. There's a, it's a, very, there's a very dark jazz kind of orchestral, uh, you know, mean streets kind of sound that, uh, with saxophones and drums and uh, that, that always appealed to me as a composer. So I thought, you know, put that all together and, uh, and I, what I want to create is a piece of musical theater that's inspired by that music, that's set in Nova Scotia, and, that's, uh, and, and I had to do it. So I had to write it. So that's how I started with it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's a, what, what is it about film noir that is so uh, interesting to you that... Why do you love it so much? You know, it's a, it's, it's the twists of the narrative. It's a very, it's a very story-driven kind of form. Uh, you know, they say that uh, that in uh, in England they create uh, whodunits, and in uh, America they they create why whodunits. And uh, uh, I think that that's what is interesting to me. And I prefer the why whodunit because it's more uh, it's more psychological. It's not uh, it's not really about oh if the butler left the candlestick in the thing then he must have been, you know trying to it's not figuring it out on that level. It's actually Actually, trying to figure out psychologically why is this person creating doing this crime, and uh, and there and there's something very life and death. I mean, the 
film noir, they generally ha involve a murder there or some kind of very, very high stakes crime. Uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of dealing with guilt and ramifications and, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it allows you to go into very dark places, uh, but in a way that's also very exciting. It's got, a, it's got a, a story that drives, you know. So, so to me, you know, it's funny, although I wrote the music and I wrote the words, actually there's something that's more important than either the music or the words. It's the story to me. So the music and the words, if, if they do not contribute to the narrative, no matter how beautiful they may be, they have to go. So it all, it all has to be about telling the story. It's one of the, the great things that I love about film noir uh, in The Wrong Son and in the movies and the novels is that on one level you can just appreciate it as a murder thriller. It's narrative. So you can go to it and you can just get into the whodunit of it all. But then if you want to, there's this whole other side of why did they do it. And so it examines all kinds of political, thematic, social, psychological uh, things. Um, Cornell Woolrich is one of your favorites, right? Mm -hmm. are, are you all familiar with this form of the roman noir and the film noir? Do you, do you know some of the references we're talking about here? What are the great noir films? Well, the, the ones people would know would, might be The Maltese Falcon, um, Sunset Boulevard, um, Out of the Past. Uh, they're, 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 that period, they often have a detective involved. Uh, Maltese Falcon is probably the most famous one. Another one is uh, Double Indemnity. Pretty popular. The, those are those are sort of a, a few of the great noirs. But there's but there's actually uh, as much uh, as much as the the films are quite well known and they're called film noir because it was they were recognized in France. Every now and again, France seems to recognize something that is happening in North America that North America itself does not recognize. But uh, they, Jerry Lewis, for example. <laughs> But they, they, this form, which at the time... Next season we'll be doing Wacky <laughs> Professor. <laughs> but at the time, the films were really kind of B-films in, in North America. They, certainly, they never won Oscars. They were, not, they were not that kind of, considered that kind of caliber of art in North America. But they became recognized in France as great masterpieces and, and, and treated very differently there. But there's also a whole series... That's what, so that's why it's film noir. They actually, it was named in France. Um, but uh, there's also a whole series of novels that come out of that period, which I was involved in as much as the uh, films. Uh, which, and the films are fairly known in the culture, but the novels are quite obscure. But they often were the inspirations for the, uh, for the um, movies. And there's uh, this one writer Peter is referring to, Cornell Woolrich, uh, who I would doubt that anybody here knows, maybe. But uh, he, he, wrote, uh, he wrote Rear Window, which you might know that. Yeah. The, he wrote the book that Rear Window was based on. And he wrote another one called The, the Night Us a Thousand Eyes, which is a... So, he, so these things were, many of them were inspired by novels that have really, the novels have now been forgotten. Uh, but, uh, but they're great novels. They're very exciting. So I, I spent a lot of time with those two, this, this writer, Cornell Woolrich. It's, it's very interesting in noir because um, film critics talk about how the films examine a lot of the traumas of the Second World War. And they're just prior to the idea of the 50s being a time of peace, prosperity, and you know, fathers knows best, and 2.5 children, that whole kind of idea of the 50s. This is just before that, and so it presents the city at night. This idea that while we are all safely sleeping. The private eye is up all night long where the gangsters and this other side of society 
rises. And it invites that uh, way of looking at ourselves that way, the other, the, the other side of ourselves. And in rehearsal, when we were working on this piece, in, in theater so much we talk about stakes. Uh, what do you want in the scene? What are you going for? Uh, what's, what's, what matters? And what's so interesting about this piece and about noir is it's not just uh, what will you do, it's about what would you kill for? <laughs> Which is, a, you know, it really, where are the stakes? They've got to be really high. And, you know, we like to think of ourselves, I certainly think of myself as a peaceful, nonviolent person. <laughs> but what, what would I actually kill to defend, to protect, right? And so the, what I love about it is what you think is a good guy and what you think is a bad guy is blurry. It, it asks us to question those things. And, and the form has continued on. We see it. Um, it was, had a huge revival in the 70s, a film like Chinatown. You could say it was done in a film noir style, or the films of Quentin Tarantino have a very noir kind of style. There's a movie that just came out called The Black Dahlia, mm -hmm. which again, so it, it's something that keeps uh, continuing. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think the popularity of that is? Of like, um, I think that I, I think it, it is about the it, it's a, it is about the stories. The stories are very very strong, but there's also some kind of uh, uh, well in the time you know I think that when they came out there was something about the consciousness of uh, North America was very wounded by the war. So at that time, I think that the, there's you know critics say and I think I think there's some truth in it that 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 kind of filmmaking emerged organically out of a very uh, a very black period of, that had just gone on in the in the early 40s and really the late 40s and early 50s is sort of the period of where the film noirs happened and and I, that's partly too why it felt to set the wrong sun in Nova Scotia. I spent I talked a lot with my grandparents about this time and uh, you know how many how many of the young men in Nova Scotia didn't return. You know it was a very very dark time there and and Halifax was as, as I'm sure you guys probably know it was it was a major player in the war. Uh, there was a lot. A lot of uh, stuff happening with the Navy out of Halifax, so so they they came out of it very wounded by a, by a, a long and difficult war, um, and I think that that you can see how you come out of something like that, and it's not just so easy as to say, well, we were victorious. You know, <laughs> it's very people have gone through, uh, through through a real hell, and I think uh, I think that's what, why those films came out of that time. So that's why there was an audience for them at that time. As for why it's endured to now, I don't. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's something. Uh, there, there's always. There's, there's always some feeling of, of of darkness within us that we want to work out, and there's something. There's something about the form that, that uh, that appeals to us in that way. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, can you just uh, share with the audience today a little bit about um, the research you did on Halifax after the war and the riots that took place there? Well, the, yeah, it's an, uh, I was, uh, I, I've just been reading about it in recent times, but um, the uh, Halifax really exploded at the end of the war in a really, uh, in a horrible way. Uh, it, uh, the, the actual declaration of victory uh, um, prompted riots in Halifax that uh, there are people who survived the entire war only to not survive the celebration of the victory at, at the end. 
at the end of the war. Because there was, because there was such conflict between, there was such a large Navy presence of sailors from all over uh, the world in Halifax, which is a relatively small city, and there was a, there was a climate of hostility between the, the, the forces and the citizens of the city. It, it, it had to do a lot with, um, it had a lot to do with uh, just, they didn't have proper facilities to really house the, the sailors and the soldiers there. And uh, it's, a, it's a dark uh, period in uh, Halifax history, um, that what happened. I mean, there's actually a lot of, I think there's a lot of pride in Halifax in, ha in what a contribution Halifax made to the war effort. But the, but the way that they handled the, the victory celebrations and the kind of looting that went on in the city, is, is, is they're not proud of that. And, and, they, and it wounded the city for quite a long time. Wow, because at first thought, you know, you think, okay, a film noir kind of story set in Halifax, but when you think about <coughs> the fogginess of it, mm -hmm. and you think of the age of the city and the quality of light at night, it's in so many respects the, the perfect scenario. For, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, in the, you'll notice when you go into the theater, there's a whole soundscape of a dock in the harbor, and you hear the sound of the foghorn, you go, oh, I'm right in film noir, and so yeah, here you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really evocative. Yeah. You, you began by describing the piece as a really personal one, <coughs> and we've been talking about film noir, and, and certainly Halifax is personal to your upbringing, but in what way is it personal? How is that personal to you? Well, um, it's set in a cabin on the Bay of Fundy. Uh, that the, that's the other setting. Uh, it's in Halifax, where I grew up. Uh, but also, a uh, cabin on the Bay, there's a very one particular cabin on the Bay of Fundy that's very personal to me. That's my grandparents' cabin. So uh, that's where I always see it. Uh, now, this cabin doesn't look much like that one, but, uh, but that's where it is in my mind's eye. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a particularly uh, there's particularly details of my uh, of my grandparents <coughs> in, in in this piece. Uh, my, actually, my grand more my grandfather because there's mostly an, well, there's an old man in this piece. Now, but I, it's important though when you see this old man. My grandfather wasn't really like him exactly, <laughs> but uh, but he has but he has little shadings of uh, of that. So it, it's it's very actually last night was opening night and a number of members of my family were at the at the performance and it was I felt a bit like oh I hope you guys aren't going to mind because there actually are details little details of my family in there but I tell them all you know none of you are like the murderer or anything like that right <laughs> yeah in um you were in Paris when you began working on this and mm -hmm. that was in 1919 91 yeah around that yeah around that and at the time uh some of you might remember there was a very uh influential book it was very popular in the late 80s early 90s called Iron John it was by Robert Bly, and it really was, became the sort of forefront of what's been called the men's movement. And what's interesting about this subject is that it, it was very quickly ridiculed and parodied. You know, we think of, you know, guys going off and beating a drum in the woods and uh, channeling their inner warrior. But it's a book, actually, that's sort of the third element of The Wrong Son that I think was, uh, had a big impact on you, eh? Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing a little sure. bit about that? Well, the main, the main, and this is the part where I'd say the piece, 
The piece is inspired by film noir, but uh, the wrong sign, but it really departs from film noir. It's, it's hardly like a, it, this piece would not have been made in 1948 because of, largely because of these kind of issues. There's a father and son relationship in it. And the, the, the idea that was, uh, the, in, in this book, Iron John, you're talking about, that was um, important to me was the thought of a current generation of men, uh, who grow, who, many of whom have grown up um, without a strong father presence. With a, uh, and the, the, this is a very contemporary phenomenon. It sort of began historically uh, with the Industrial Revolution when fathers started leaving the home to work, and that became a normal thing. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, what this book is talking about is um, how, uh, how young, if young, young men are not given an, the influence of a father, they, they can, uh, it can happen that they don't know how to deal <clears throat> with their own violent urges, that their own masculine urges that, that, that are natural to them, that they could be, they could be using for, uh, to, to, to do good things, to do positive things in the world without some kind of a mentor or a paternal energy to tell you how to, to help you to find how to use that in a positive way it can turn to uh, using it in, a, in a, some kind of a violent way. So, so what this this book essentially was was saying: fathers, you mu you must stay with your with your sons. You must you must father them and help them to grow up to be responsible men. Um, that's sort of there's a whole lot more to it than that. But anyway, that's the that was the basic thing. And um, so, the wrong son is about is about a, a, a man who, who did not have a father and in a sense meets a surrogate one. So there's a, there's a, uh, that's a whole, that is a major thread in the piece. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that on one level with this piece we can talk about murder mysteries, we can talk about Halifax, and we can talk about this subject of fathers and sons, and it all happens in a musical. <laughs> and uh, that's a great power of music, right? Is she can speak about very profound things in a very entertaining way. Alan is very, you've got very strong ideas about musicals. And uh, wh why, is the, why is the form important to you? Why have you committed so much of your life to it? Well, there's a, uh, I, I do believe it, uh, it's, it's a good question because it's such a difficult form and there are really actually not that many great musicals. Even those of us who create them in the world acknowledge that actually there are, only, there are not a lot of great ones because it's such a difficult, it is a difficult thing to achieve. There are so many elements from the, from the, from the lyrics to the dialogue to the construction of the story to the music to the orchestrations, the choreography. Uh, when you put it, but when it does work, there's absolutely nothing like it because it really is a marriage of all of the arts. You can, it, it's taking, you know, movement, uh, literature, um, music, design, all of the, uh, you know, all of the, all of the arts really, and, and placing them in, in in one unified direction. It, it's. Uh, it's it's uh, it's unique and it can be very very moving and and it, but it's also extremely challenging because any one of those elements, if they go awry, can 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 bring down the whole thing, you know. So so uh, but I you know and I was a musician first, so uh, so but but also for, I was always interested in literature. So somehow it all came together to me and it did come together to me on a, uh, when I was working on the Three Penny Opera with the, which is a piece by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht and I. And they were both so brilliant in that piece. Uh, this was like when I was 20 years old, I think, and I found this piece. And, and it, for me, it, it showed me how the music can be intelligent and beautiful and moving and passionate, and so can the text. And, and you put those two things together, and uh, 
it's, it's something very special. So they, they were kind of the departure point for me, those two. What do you say to people who say, I don't like musicals? Which you encounter, right? You I do it? all the time. You know what people say to me, and I never know whether to take this as a compliment or not, is they say, I like your musicals, and I don't usually like musicals. <laughs> <laughs> I think, thanks, I guess. <laughs> what do you think they mean? Because I hear that too, and, and I, I, I kind of think I do know what they mean. Well, what do you think they mean? Listen, it's your interview. <laughs> I just pose them. I think what they mean is it's a, you know, one thing you'll see is it's not, it's in some ways really a, a, the, the term musical, in fact, I'm not even sure if it's the right word for, for what this piece is. Uh, it's almost a little bit like an opera, but we don't want to ever say that. <laughs> as soon as you say that, everybody goes, oh no, I'm not going to like that. But uh, it, what, what, what it's not in an operatic voice, you know, it's in a, it's a, it's in a modern uh, kind of more of a, contemporary jazz kind of voice, I guess. That's partly why it's not an opera. But, but the part of it that is kind of operatic is that, uh, is that the, much, of, much of the dialogue is sung. So it's not just a, a series of songs that are sort of a love song and then, and then a bunch of dialogue in which you get the, the plot and then another song. It's actually a lot of the plot, the actual narrative, uh, happens in sung, sung music. And uh, that, like what you call in opera, what you call recitative. And uh, so I, I think that's that's I think that's partly what people who say they don't like musicals like about it is that it's they, the, those people often don't like just the sort of the, the static nature of just a song and then a scene and then a song and a scene and this and this there's an attempt in this kind of work to make it more integrated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We see, we still have yeah. that idea that somehow content and form are separate. You know, because when you think of musicals, we think of a musical comedy, right? And that it's going to be all fluff. But uh, the other thing, too, about a musical, it's a very commercial form, too. It, mm -hmm. it, um, it really speaks to an audience. It's really about engaging with an audience, too. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to thank Alan very much for coming in and meeting with us today and give you some time to get downstairs. And I really hope you enjoy The Wrong Sun this afternoon. And thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. for this very first edition of the Hinterviews podcast. I hope you'll join us for next month's Hinterview when Peter will be talking to co-founder and co-artistic director of the celebrated One Yellow Rabbit Theatre, Blake Brooker. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hinterviews at gmail.com. That's H-I-N-T-E-R-V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. Until next month, this is Laura Denker for Peter Hinton and Company saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Mm -hmm.